Now, in this uh, familiar story this morning, I remember in seventh grade, we had music class, and one of the songs we learned was Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. And uh, many of us know this African-American spiritual that had its origins in pre-Civil War days of slavery. And I don't know about you, but anytime I hear a reading like this and someone starts to tell the story, I can't help but think in my mind and start singing, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. I know you'd like me to sing more this morning, but uh, I, I don't, I don't want to be overly entertaining or anything, okay? So, um, but I was thinking about this in terms of the preschool as well, and uh, it's got to be this story, one of the top 10 all-time favorites in terms of uh, uh, preschool ministry. I mean, if you're a teacher, you, uh, you grab the cardboard blocks and a few figures, and you can immediately build a wall and act out this story with the amazing point about how great and awesome God is, and then knock that wall flat. And if you're a little boy, this is as close to heaven on earth as it gets, okay, being able to knock that wall down. Well, in our story, we know that the nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan by the mighty power of the Almighty. And one thing stood between them and the possession of the land, and that was the city of Jericho. We know that the uh, nations, go ahead and put up our slide there of the walls of Jericho, that the nation of uh, Israel, uh, after the crossing the Jordan, this city of Jericho has been researched greatly uh, and it, there were actually two walls, an inner wall and an outer wall, and they're both built on a slope, making it almost impossible for an attacking army. And my understanding is that there was a stone retaining wall at the base, and that stone retaining wall was about 12 to 15 feet high. And on top of that was a mud brick wall that was another six feet thick. And about 20 to 26 feet high. So we're talking somewhere between 30 to 35 to 50 feet high are the walls of Jericho. So let's just put it this way there is no way, from a human point of view, that you could break the wall, scale the wall, or penetrate the wall. That's the obvious conclusion we're to understand. So in our passage, as you read through Joshua chapter 6, God instructs the Jews with some very strange things. Well, they're to march around the town or the walls, the city, for six days. That's in verse 3. They're to march with the Ark of the Covenant. It's verse 4. They're to put the seven priests in front of the ark. That's in verse 4. And on the seventh day, they're to march around Jericho seven times, verse 5. 
If my count is right, that is 13 times they're going to go around this city. They're going to have the priests blow the ram's horn as they marched. And on the seventh time around on the seventh day, or the 13th time, everybody is to shout. And then verse 5 says, the walls are going to come down. And when the walls fall down, enter the city and take it. Now this was God's message to Joshua. And as Joshua relays this to the people, Joshua adds, adds a few extra details in his instructions. He gave orders for the people. One was the very interesting uh, detail is to be completely silent as they marched around the city. And so they carried out this plan for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched seven times. And then the priests, at the end of the seventh time, blast their horns. And everybody shouts as loud as they could. Now, so we don't miss it, let me repeat again what the strategy was. Marching, blowing horns, and shouting. To me, that sounds a little bit more like a football game, or a soccer match, or a school parade, or on a practical level, as we said last week, as we were talking about common sense or uncommon sense, what are the odds of this, that this approach is going to work, causing those walls to collapse? But here's the kicker. Do any of these activities have any military value whatsoever? We're talking about soldiers, fighters, going into battle. And yet, what does any of this activity have to do with conventional warfare or besieging a city. Of course, we know how the story turns out. And God leaves no doubt that he will give them this strategic city, that everything belongs to him, his people, they belong to him, the land, it belongs to him. And the pagan Canaanites, they belong to him. And God will deliver on his promises. So I want us to see verse 2, because this promise is laid out before God gives these instructions that I just detailed. And this comment that he makes to Joshua in verse 2 is in past tense. God knew that it was as good as done before anything happened. 6 and verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered. 
Jericho into your hands. They haven't even begun to march. Not even one time. But he puts it in past tense. I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Here's what I want us to see this morning. This is not a story of war, but of worship. That we need to readjust our headsets in both this particular scenario that we might call a battle, but also in all of the scenarios in your life where you might think, I'm battling. And the readjustment is this, that Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Rather, the Lord's people took the city through worship. The whole scene is marked by worship. It's holy ground, if you read in chapter 5. There are holy moments. You remember a couple of weeks ago, there was the building of the stone memorial. It was an act of devotion and worship. And then last week, the circumcision sermon, how could you forget, was an act of devotion to God. Then there was the celebration of the Passover together right after they'd crossed the river. These are all deep experiences of devotion to God. And I'm just getting started. Remember at the end of chapter 5, Joshua has this com- a profound encounter with the commander of the army. And, and, and the text says that now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went and asked him, are you for us or are for our enemies? Remember that encounter? Here's what verse 14 says. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message but does my Lord have for his servant? Verse 15 then says, The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, the man that Joshua encountered is the Lord God himself. And what happens? Worship happens. Joshua worships him. Joshua falls on his face before him. Joshua takes off his sandals. The scene is an epic encounter with the holy. A holy God, a holy place, a holy merit, a moment merits a holy response. Now in our section today, in chapter 6, with all those moments of holiness and devotion that precede this, I want us to see chapter 6 and verse 8. 
the text says this. And seven, when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. You see, Joshua listens to the Lord's instructions and he puts the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where the Lord dwells with his people. Where does he put it? Out front. It, along with the priests, those who have been dedicated their lives to God to be that, the go-between between God and the people are the one who are to lead this battle. It leads the march. The parade was a procession of worship more than it was a procession of military might. And it is priests, not warriors, who blow horns. And the people listening and who following God who shout, who then bring down the walls. I wonder what the warriors of Israel were thinking as Joshua leads in this way. Could we say that the point of this odd march around the city was not to show off the strength of Israel, but to show Israel's God through worship, through devotion? So here we are this summer in our series, Step by Step, and I've been asking, what are your next steps of faith? And I've been trying to prompt you in every way I can think of to think about where am I and what is God asking of me? What's he asking of this church? What are our next steps? So here's the big idea this morning. In your next steps of faith, your battles will be won through worship. So if we could apply this familiar story of Joshua, how can we then go into battle as worshipers? That's the question. That's really where we, it gets uh, practical for us. I want to suggest, number one, that we, we, we bow in reverent submission. This is what Joshua did when he met the commander of the Lord and this is our next step as well. Recognize that the Lord is leading the battles and that the ark of covenant of the Lord and the priests of the Lord, the presence of the Lord is to go before the people. In other words, the Holy Spirit that God has given us and given the church in our day is to go before us. And so we invite his leadership. What if the challenges in our lives were not met as has happened with so many of us in so many circumstances in the last few months with defiance or outrage or amusement or avoidance or writing a hot email to somebody 
or walking away for good and said, I've done with them. What if we responded with worship? Worship helps us to find our strength in God, not from our own capacities. Let God take your anxiety and your frustrations by naming Him, by praising Him, by doing battle with your demons. Worship opens spiritual eyes to who God is, to the truth of His Word, to your true self, and to the lies of the enemy. I want to suggest that our best life is not lived through the willful execution of our battle plans. but through the bending of our knees and the bowing of our heads. Here's the prayer. Lord, help me to move, to take the next step beyond giving lip service to you to a deep settledness in my spirit that the battle belongs to the Lord. Now I want you to see a couple other things here, and I'll keep this brief. But in verse 2, in that passage that was in past tense, I think we might say it this way. We believe, and in our belief, there is a hopeful anticipation that God will bring about His promises. Faith is knowing with a certainty that before an event has happened, that it will happen because God has said it will happen. Now, I don't mean just any event. Just because you visualize a new car, do I think it's going to somehow show up in the driveway? Okay, but I mean events as they relate to God's kingdom. He has promised in God, within God's plan of redemption, it is as if it has already happened. And this is the reason that we could have in that great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And you might go back this week, in fact, and read Joshua 5 and 6 in tandem with Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll see this wonderful complementarity. But in chapter 11 of Hebrews, remember the wonderful verse, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You see, this is what the Bible says the ancients were commended for. This is what Joshua is commended for. The Lord said it was going to come to pass. And Joshua trusted, and it came to pass. Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. It picks up on this 
wonderful passage from Joshua. As we worship, we tell God's story back to him. And it opens our eyes and the eyes of our hearts to what's going on in our spiritual world, what's going on in the biblical text. It opens us to this spiritual understanding of God's plan of redemption. Confident worship repeats that the victory is already won. The enemy is annoying. Okay, the evil one, Satan, and sometimes all his masquerading, all his posturing, and sometimes as he presents himself through other people, is annoying, is distracting, but here's the point. The evil one has lost the battle Our God has already gained the victory. It was won on a cross. And his will and his outcomes are certain. So I want you to hear this. And if you want to tweet it out, that's just fine. But don't be bullied by an already defeated enemy. Number three, fight then with the weapons of worship. Because I I know there's been a lot of battles in us. They've They've been raging here for about 18 months if they weren't going before that for some of us. But they've really show themselves, okay, in a lot of different ways. I understand that. We're going to fight them with the weapons of worship. It's the reason 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So I'm asking myself, what are these weapons then with which we fight? Well, if I look at my, go back to my passage in Joshua, I say one, first of all, is humility. It's humility. We fight by surrendering to God And with that surrendered spirit, we bring that into the context of our relationships with one another. We fight with faith. With a confidence in God's perspective that he's got this. We fight with prayer. And the scripture is peppered with examples We fight with praise. Whether that's parading around and sounding out the ram's horn or whether that's staying perfectly silent as Joshua instructed the Israelites to do, worship makes clear who the real commander is and so we fight with this devotion to God. 
I stumbled on this uh, Old Testament example. Just want to read this one passage as it explains this idea of fighting with praise because this, this in Joshua is not an, uh, uh, is not an exception. In other words, there are other illustrations of this in our Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 22. This is uh, during the reign of King Jehoshaphat when he was being attacked by the enemy. Here was his battle strategy. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The enemy was brought down by worship. Tommy Walker, worship leader, explains the breakthrough power of worship. And uh, he writes this. There is something inherent in the act of worship that enables us to encounter the power of God like nothing else. See, this is our takeaway this morning, church, so don't miss it. It's not effective to simply tell someone to stop worrying or stop being so proud or stop being self-consumed or distracted or insecure or bound and materialistic. But it is effective to tell them to start worshiping. When we make that decision to fix our eyes on Jesus, we quickly realize, and here's the change in our awareness and our expectation, our perception, that God has already begun to release the grip of these tendencies that they have on our lives. When we worship, we begin to release. This morning in your next steps of faith, which I pray are today, at your very point of need, I challenge you to be a worshiper, a fearless worshiper, letting the Lord God fight your battles for you. The word of the Lord.